0: They we're going to be in Matthew 17. And last time we looked at the real Jesus. Just like society today, uh, an enlightened society, a post-modern society, post-God society tries to make a God in their own image. Well, there's many today that try to make a Jesus in their own image. And we covered that uh, last Sunday. This is what the Bible says about who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, fully God and fully man. Although over the years, over the millennia, Many have tried to make a God in their own image, and that's just not accurate. And this Sunday we're going to see the glory of the Lord, which really uh, blew me away when I read it, when I read it and studied it, and uh, you know, I just pray that I do it justice today. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with two verses at the end of chapter 16, because really it's one thought. Remember, the Bible, uh, the, a person came and made delineations several centuries later. Uh, and they put chapters and verses, and but it never was like that from the beginning. And really, if you look at the end of 16, it does go with 17, when you take it together as one thought. So Matthew 16, starting with verse 27, it says, For the Son of Man will come in glory of his Father with his angels, and he, then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, I love that. Who did he answer? But Peter responds, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So the transfiguration in the Greek, the word is metamorpho. Of course, is where we get the word in English, metamorphosis, a change of form. Let's start with his clothing. Now, I'm going to bring Mark and Luke's Gospels together with Matthew just to get the the best detailed picture that we can get of this event. So in Mark 9.3, he says, His clothes were as white as snow as no launderer could whiten it. This is something they've never seen before. Look at his clothes. That's amazing. Look at his face. What's going on here? In Luke 9:29, it said that his robe was white and glistening. Now if you compare this scripture to Revelation 1: 14 through 16, we see Jesus in his glorified form, And you can see the similarity from his clothes, from his hair, all the way down to his feet, is transformed, is changed. Now, Jesus, this is very interesting, because he is fully God and fully man. He walked the earth. And I submit to you that there were times that you could see he was fully God when he walked on the water, wow. When he cast out a demon, when he raised the dead. I mean, that just came out. But I, I believe that you probably, and it's not what I believe, it's what the scripture says in Isaiah, that even his appearance, that as a man, you wouldn't take much notice to him. He didn't come, you know, beautiful or that, you know, that everybody would look at him and, and say he's drop dead gorgeous. According to Isaiah, not the case because I believe that would have been a distraction. So he's fully God and fully man, and you see these things happening. Now, I'm thinking about the whole clothes issue, and in my mind, I got a black shirt here, and I'm thinking how, and I'm sure he didn't wear a black robe or whatever, but uh, if you look at this, this looks pretty much opaque. If I put it up, you probably can't see me. Uh, But then when you take a light and you put it behind it, And just a very powerful light, you turn it on, you start to see it change. It goes really from opacity to translucence in the matter of a split second. And that's just this light. That's just what we can see with our eyes of the visible range of a human being in the electromagnetic spectrum. Here we're talking about the glory of the Lord. So even with that little demonstration, you can get the point. But imagine the glory of, the, of God. That his fibers, the fibers in his clothes, it just the, the light just went right through it. And they probably didn't even see the clothes. They just saw something that they couldn't explain. It's pretty amazing. So just put yourself in their position. And, and I believe that it wasn't even his full glory. Because sinful man, how much in our sinful state can we handle at the time? I'm going to read some other scriptures that kind of back that up. But we see Moses and Elijah are up there with him. They're speaking. And they represent the law and the prophets. And really, it's everything that pointed to Jesus. You show me anything. Go into the Torah. Go into the Torah. Look at concepts. Go into the Old Testament. Go look at the prophetic writings. You show me anything, and I'll show you Jesus. You show me reconciliation between God and man. Jesus. You show me sin atonement. Jesus. Jesus. The blood atonement, the shedding of, of the lamb's blood, Jesus. Check this out. In the future, prophetic works, Israel's mass repentance uh, and, and restoration. There's Jesus there. He, he's surrounding that mass repentance. So it's pretty amazing. In Luke 9.31, it says they spoke of his, in the Greek, exodos, where we get the word exodus, his departure, his releasing, his atoning death had to happen leading to the resurrection. And really, everything in the law and the prophets pointed to the pinnacle, pointed to the apex, pointed to the sliver of time in human history where Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again. The atoning death, the blood sacrifice, so that we could have eternal life. The more we understand God's word, the more we understand how much God loves us corporately, but also as individually. Peter again opens his mouth for the sake of saying something. I'm sure all of us have been there, you know? You just, you feel like you need to say something and it's not the right thing. Uh, But I don't want to pick on him too much because I probably would have done the same thing. You know, it is good for us to be here. Yeah, of course it is. Let me make three tabernacles. I'm thinking, they're on the top of the mountain. Where is he going to find stuff to make them a shelter? Where is he going to make twigs and, and wicker furniture? I don't know. But he had to say something. And the God the Father interrupts and tells them basically to be quiet and to listen to Jesus. And there's some times that as believers we just need to be quiet and listen and meditate and sit at his feet. It is a good place to be. So, God the Father, from an illuminated or a radiant cloud, taking all the scriptures together, sort of like the one that guided the children of Israel through the wilderness. Again, his full glory not revealed. He revealed some of his glory to Moses. He revealed some of his glory to Elijah. However, his full glory could not be sustained by sinful man. So the disciples, put yourself in their shoes, probably sensory overload at this point. Sights, sounds, you know, whatever the sense is, they were being overloaded and they fall to the ground. And we'll read uh, Isaiah 6 and we see a similar experience. And the father says, hear him. I want to read three uh, verses in Hebrews 1. Because this is good. If you're ever dealing with a cultist, they'll bring up that, of course, their church, you know, their way is the right way. And they have this prophet They came around 2,000 years later and and you know, Christianity was all apostate until their prophets showed up, some of the groups that I mentioned before service. But it says this in Hebrews 1, written in the first century, God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, there was a big emphasis, especially in the Old Testament, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world's who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I think that says it all. So back to the word again, back to the Lagos. And today, you know, we have a lot of technology and there's a lot of ministries trying to tantalize their uh, churchgoers, trying to have a sight and sound experience, trying to uh, wow them with a different experience. But the truth is, we just need the word. The word. Did God, did it skip, skip his attention that we were going to be so uh, technologically savvy in these days? Uh, did, did, was it something that he didn't think about that we had to fill in for him? The truth is, it all goes back to his word. Amen. Now, this is a timely message because the world today is passing away. The world, as you read the newspaper, and I know I pray for some of these things every Sunday, uh, it's a mess. And the glory of God will one day be revealed to all. For some, it'll be too late. For some, they will bow the knee out of obligation. But I personally want to bow the knee out of adoration. He's the king, and he's my father, the king. And that's the attitude that we need to have. I do grieve, though, for the lost. And I think that we all should have, at some measure, an evangelist's heart. For those that you know that are loved ones, that may be friends you've known for years, be praying for them if they don't know the Lord. You see them struggling, you see them fall down, and you, your heart goes out to them, right? So um, the lost, they need to know about the Lord. Uh, I, and again, I've seen many, uh, a situation that I can't go into detail, uh, a person that was going between both worlds. They were in the world, and they were trying to be, in the Lord, and, and they kept going back and forth, and they got themselves into a lot of trouble. And they came to me, and they said, "I didn't do it." And I said, "Yeah, but you're in a situation now. If you would have been walking the right walk, you wouldn't be in a position where you have to say whether you did it or not. You have to go through the system now. So it's heartbreaking. And I've seen others that um, that struggle with drug addiction, and I can't tell you how many I've seen that, that have had heroin overdoses. Uh, it, it's a tough thing." It's a really heartbreaking thing to watch. Verse 10, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Now, what does this come from? This, uh, this situation, we know that Elijah, we see him in the Old Testament, but also in Malachi, right? One of the minor prophets, Malachi 4, speaks about Elijah the prophet. Number one, that he will come. But we know that Elijah has also come. So let's take this apart, because this is important. So the first thing, Elijah has come uh, in in John the Baptist in the sense that the Bible said he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Uh, We know that he heralded the Messiah and they killed him. Elijah is coming, Jesus says as well. What does that refer to? Well, probably if we look at Revelation 11, and we did the Revelation study, we see the two witnesses and we see them literally calling down uh, fire and, and judgment from heaven, and this is in our future, right? probably will be raptured already by that point. Uh, And you see this picture, many uh, scholars have said, and and although it's not mentioned, one of these witnesses is probably Elijah. He comes again, and what does he do? He has the same typical ministry. And he also heralds the Messiah's second coming, because it's prior to the Lord's second coming. Now, this is important, and again, especially in light of the supposed end of the world that didn't happen yesterday. Uh, What about the rapture? So let me try to make this understanding and and palatable so we can understand it. Here's the confusion. The rapture is not technically a coming to the earth. Once we understand that, then it all makes sense afterwards. If we look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord comes for his saints in the clouds of the air, and he calls us up. He doesn't touch down on the earth. So it's technically not a coming to the earth. So let's look at this. Christ literally came to the earth 2,000 years ago. He stepped foot on this earth. He lived among men and uh, the earth. And his job or his mission was to transform the world spiritually, much to the chagrin that we're looking for a different type of Messiah. Now check this out, Christ's second coming to the world Again, he touches down to the earth. We look at the prophecies in Zechariah and other prophecies. We look at the prophetic books. He touches down on the Mount of Olives, so he comes to earth. And for what reason? To come now as a judge, to come as the lion, the first time he came as the lamb, to set all things in their proper order and to transform the world physically as well as spiritually. Right? So uh, the heavens and the earth, everything will be in line, everything will be in tune to what the Messiah is going to do when he comes the second time. And that's what the Jews were waiting for the first time. But they didn't see the division in those Old Testament prophecies, you see? So it makes, it's clear when we understand that. Now, there are some that believe in, uh, we're, we're considered, I guess you could say, Dispensationalists, pre-trib, we're pre-millennialists, but that's really what the Scripture says. There's a a teaching out there called amillennialism, which pretty much is very hard to follow. It allegorizes the Book of Revelation, uh, and what happens is uh, there's idealism mixed in there, and that the church is going to reform the world, and it's it's very confusing. And those who follow it have a difficult time, especially with the book of Revelation and the rapture and the first and second comings. You might be surprised to find that some of the well-known, even Calvinist preachers, have done studies on books all throughout the scripture. But You go to their website and you click click Revelation. They've never done verse by verse through Revelation because they can't. And not all of them, but some of them believe in this amillennialism, and they don't do a study verse by verse because they either have to allegorize it or they stay away from it completely. Some will go as far as to say that it's not inspired. So be careful of that teaching. Verse 14, and when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, "O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and he came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast him out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So if you get the picture here, uh Jesus is up there with James and John and Peter, and they're coming down from the mountain. The other nine are down at, at the lower elevation there, and there's an issue. There's a boy, a father and a boy, I'm not really sure how old he is, but he's demon possessed and the demon is tearing him apart. And in Mark 9, adds something very interesting that the scribes and the disciples were arguing while the boy is foaming at the mouth, gnashing his teeth, being thrown down into the water, into the fire. This poor kid is being just abused by this demon. And it probably was a chaotic scene while this boy is suffering. And you know, I could just picture the nine arguing with the scribes because uh, if you look at it, they both really had the authority to be spiritual leaders. And they're bickering back and forth while this poor boy is suffering and nobody's helping him. And the way I look at this is, and it just came to me, that sometimes Christians get caught up in bickering and focusing on themselves when the world is going to hell in a handbasket, to quote a, a cliche. It's true, the world is in a state of chaos. And why? What is the reason for this this bickering and this this? A lot of it is self focus. You got guys like Rob Bell uh, writing books, uh, you know. Oh, look, I wrote this book and trying to do away with uh, two thousand years of good Christian study and throwing confusion into the world that hell doesn't exist. You got Harold Camping predicting the end of the world. That's the problem: is the self focus and the dissension in the church. I just somebody just sent me a, um, a letter. Uh, an email about a pastor um, it 's just an open letter to the church about a lot of division and dissension in the church while the boy is is suffering and nobody 's helping him. Think about that and you know i 've never read in one account in the scripture where somebody was demon possessed and it worked out well for them and there are there is a world of, of people who are self destructive have dysfunctional lifestyles and my, my heart goes out to them but they're really play, playing into the hands of the evil one who's trying to destroy them. You know, I, I've met many tortured individuals that have come and said, when I'm in church, I feel better. And I say, you know, we could put beds downstairs while we're all home. You guys could stay here, but I don't know if the fire department would be okay with that. But why not take it with you all the time? And I, I try to use humor. But the truth is, we can have that peace. We can have that, that functionality. We can be what we were created to be. All we have to do is give our hearts to the Lord and start to follow him and he'll make sense of our lives, you see? And there's that opportunity today as well if you don't know the Lord. Verse 16, after all this time the disciples can't help and Jesus rebukes them for their faithlessness. There are plenty that are part of the Christian culture who are also likewise powerless. They're powerless to help. But Christ gave us the ability to do amazing things. Jesus responds, how long must I bear with you? What would he say to our generation? Do you believe that God has the power to do miracles? Do you believe that? Because I do. Yes. Do you believe that God wants to use you to do those miracles and use you as a vehicle? Because I believe that as well. I've seen it firsthand. Right? Just a little bit of mustard seed of faith. Me? How can God use me? I'm on disability. You know, I, I'm in a bad situation. I'm going broke trust them. Start with that little, that little grain of faith, that little mustard seed. You can partake in it. In Mark 9, 24, the boy's father, we see this added. uh, It's a part that Mark notices and he felt it should be in sacred scripture. And the boy's father says to Jesus, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Doesn't that sound like a, a contradiction in terms? Well, God does rebuke. You know, the disciples should have known better. They were rebuked. The religious leaders should have known better. Christ rebuked them. However, to this man, he's gentle with. He does what the guy asks, doesn't ask him to be a part of their church or whatever. He just does it for the man because he has compassion on him. So the Lord is always gentle with the fragile. Again, all you need is a mustard seed worth of faith. God can do great things through you. In verse 20, Jesus tells them that they couldn't heal because of their unbelief and they walked with him. Now, we can say, well, you know what? They're just humans. It's part of the human condition. But Jesus rebukes them because he gave them the power to do all these things. And I believe that his discipline was a loving discipline. I really believe that. But he was firm. I want to direct your attention. How many of you have heard of a reverend pastor, Lester Summerall, in the 1950s? Maybe a few of you, some of you, not that many. Here's a guy who went to the Philippines and God had called him and his team to be missionaries there and he found it was so difficult to minister. You know, it was post-World War II, you had the Korean War era and it was just a difficult place, difficult ground, maybe questioning, Lord, why do you have me here? And then he comes to a situation where there's a, a late teenage girl who's being just abused and nobody can figure out what is wrong with her receiving literally bite marks on her back. So they put her into this, like quarantine her and they, and they isolate her and they find out she's still being attacked and getting bite marks. On, and they're saying, there's no way she could do this to herself. So the authorities just say, you know what this, I heard this story from Chuck Smith and then I, I did a little research on my, on my own. I'm like, well, this is powerful. And the authorities say, you know, there's some missionaries, American missionaries, or I forget where he was from, you know, you might want to talk to them and his team comes over and they pray in the name of Jesus and they heal her from this oppression. And she eventually becomes a believer and it never happens again. The guy wrote a book, Bitten by Devils. Now, K.P. Yohannan uh, Gospel for Asia. I love listening to missionaries. I sit there like a little kid. Tell me, tell me what's going on in the missions field, you know? And uh, K.P. Ohannon spoke about a village he went to in India where the woman was a, a Kali, false god, a high priestess, and she came down with this incurable disease and she was on her deathbed. And the woman said, If your Jesus can heal me, all these people will become Christians. So he goes, Wow. So he prays about it and, and he gets together and, and they pray over her and she's miraculously healed and the whole village becomes believers. You know, maybe, maybe evangelism is a little slow in America, but there are a lot of other continents where it's really gathering steam. Now, that's the God that I serve. I still believe that what he did back then, what he did in the 50s, what he does in other countries, I know he does that here, and I wanna be a part of it. My question to you is, do you wanna be a part of it? All you have to do is read the paper. Yeah, we become desensitized. It's a mess. Our country is a mess. However, God is doing amazing things and all we have to do is have that faith of a mustard seed and he can work through us. Love that about my God. Verse 21, he says, this type comes out only by prayer and fasting. Now, really what this means is this is a spiritual discipline. If you you take that, okay, do I say a certain prayer? Is there a certain? No, it's not a formula. By prayer and fasting, are we disciplined in our spiritual lives? Now, I know many that may be into aerobics, martial arts, um, the gym, competitive sports, CrossFit is the new thing. But what about our spiritual discipline? I mean, we can easily beat our bodies into submission and make it do amazing things because the body's very adaptable. But what about our spiritual discipline? We have to ask ourselves, am I uh, competitive in, in my mind and in my body, but I'm a spiritual couch potato? What a contradiction in terms, right? We can put our minds to so many great things, our bodies, but where are we with the Lord? Where's our spiritual discipline? Why does that always seem to be last at times, right? I'll tell you, a guy, Richard Russell, who, you know, a brother that went to be with the Lord this week, it did his funeral. Here's a guy who the world would not have taken notice of, but he was all about serving the Lord. And in his funeral, It was glorifying to the Lord. It was amazing the things that came out in his funeral. All right. Verse 22. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up and they were exceedingly sorrowful. They were sorrowful. So we know that before in the scripture, it seemed like they were com- complete denial. They didn't want to hear it. <laughs> so now it's starting to seep in. Or seep in they're becoming sorrowful. Um, you know, and, and probably they may ask themselves, and this is where the confusion comes. I, I, I kid around sometimes about picking on the disciples, but again, I'd probably be worse than them. You have to put yourself in their shoes. Remember, Jesus spoke about Peter's profession of faith, Uh, We just covered last Sunday on this rock, I will build my church. I am the Petra and you guys could be little stones as a part of me and I'm going to build and the gates of hell won't prevail. Oh, but by the way, they're going to kill me. It's going to be an awful death. I'm going to be crucified and they're going to lay me in a tomb and I'm going to be resurrected. Probably when they heard the first few, it's just like you, you blocked out the last part. So they're probably asking themselves, oh, gee, I don't get it. You know, we're going to be little rocks. He's going to be the rock. The gates of hell won't prevail, but they're going to kill him. How does that, how does that work? And where does that leave me? See, this is what I believe, and this is why I believe that God, that the Lord uh, showed his glory in the transfiguration. You see, it gave them hope during the dark times during the times where they saw the mock trials, the unfairness, them spitting at him and, and, and punching him in the face and blindfolding him and leading him up to uh, Golgotha and, and, you know, doing all kinds of hurling insults at him and, oh, how frustrating, how depressing. And then he finally dies. This, I believe, is what carried them through. I want to read John 1, and all these, this scripture is, of of course, many years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. John one twelve. encouragement through the dark times. Second Peter, 1 John also uh, recount in detail probably uh, their remembrance of the transfiguration during those difficult times. And if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, the dark times are coming. You know, we don't get immune from that when we become believers. However, we get to go through the valley of the shadow of death with him. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. You see, when life gets me down, oh, Pastor Joe, life gets you down? Oh, yeah, it does sometimes, yeah. Remember, in both of my callings, I'm wearing a bullseye, okay? So it happens, you know? But what happens is I have promises. I've seen the miracles. I've seen the lives changed. I've seen those come to faith and completely Turn their situations around. So when the dark times come, that is something that I hold on to for dear life. It doesn't mean I'm weak. It just means no man is an island. We all go through those low times. So if, you know, I heard a lot of laughter. So if you didn't think I went through difficult times, now you know that I do. There are those spiritual, you know, Satan throws those fiery darts. And once in a while, if we don't have our spiritual armor on, one gets through and it hurts. It stings. But God will give you something to hold on to when you go through those difficult times. So this is great. Anything we can look at in the scripture, we can make an application to our lives. That's why it's the living word. Because it's alive to all of us. 2,000 years later, this is still applicable. You bet your life it's applicable. Verse 24. It's good stuff. (laughs) And when they had come to Capernaum, those who... Received the temple tax, came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. (laughs) And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their own sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. Uh, and when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Now, this is interesting because this is only mentioned in Matthew's gospel. Matthew was a tax collector. So it's so cool how God took the uniqueness of the different gospel writers. And, he, and you see this. I, I keep saying I'm going to do this. Somebody wrote a book and took all the scriptures of all four gospels and put them together like in order. And it's a great read. And I haven't found that book yet, but I keep forgetting about it. I talk about it from the pulpit. But that's just amazing. You know, I love that. So, what are we talking about here? In Exodus 30, there was a half shekel tax, so to speak, imposed on all males for the temple upkeep. And we know what the money was over the years taken and done different things with, of course, when man gets a hold of it. And there was, at, by this time, there was somewhat of a corruption element. But Jesus is basically saying, if God is the king and we're part of his royal family, uh, does God, does the king take from his own family or for those other subjects? And uh, Jesus, we know, was greater than the temple. He embodied the temple and the sons are free. Now, this is very interesting because, uh, you know, you can easily, it could could have been just an outright miracle. Uh, Either way, it was a miracle because he had the omniscience to know that particular fish had a coin in its mouth. And you can go, um, in a lot of these magazines, they say you can get like a, a box of Roman coins for like 50 bucks. They're still finding them down in the water in the Mediterranean. People drop them all the time. Uh, so it's, it wouldn't have been unreasonable. And again, God could have just done a miracle, pull the fish up, and he's got a piece of coin stuck in his mouth, and they take it out, and they pay the temple tax. But what's interesting is uh, he didn't give their own money to pay the temple tax. So the sons really were free. Now, I would also look at this and say, you know, when you walk with the Lord, it's a difficult walk because Jesus also didn't want to offend the Jewish community. You know, he didn't want to offend them. He didn't have to do any of these things because he was greater and he embodied the sacrifices and everything that was happening there. However, he didn't want to offend the Jewish community. So he uh, paid the, the, the temple tax. The apostle Paul says, I'll never eat meat again if it offends a weaker brother or it stumbles somebody. I was trained as a pastor that, that I may be able to partake of something, and it may not be unbiblical or sinful, but because it might offend someone else, don't do it, right? Now, what about the average believer? <laughs> it isn't just me. The average believer, we have unalienable, unalienable rights in the United States. The Bible makes us free. However, all things are lawful, but... If you've been a believer for a while, you know that especially in front of those that are stumbling believers, weaker believers, unsaved, there's certain things you don't partake of. Why? Because it's a sacrifice. But I should be able to do this. Right, you should be, but you're held to a higher standard. And if you really love that person and want them to come, you won't stumble them. Okay, so it's a sacrifice. So we see the glory of the Lord here, number one in the transfiguration. We see the healing of uh, a demon-possessed boy or teen. Uh, we understand uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection better. And four, of course, the miracle of the uh, fish with the uh, coin in his mouth that they took. But the icing on the cake, I believe, is that we can be a part of what he's doing. He wants us to, right? The harvest, is, it's, it's ripe, but the laborers are few. For 2,000 years, that's been going on. Let me read to you... Actually, this is my wife's favorite scripture. It's a great portion of scripture, Isaiah 6, a few verses. Similar situation in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah... Now, this guy, I believe, reigned for like uh, 52, 53 years. He was a popular king. He was a a successful king, and the Jews loved him. Uh, When he died, I saw the Lord. Here's a contrast... We're looking at man, we're looking at man, our president, our government, our country. In the year that that all kind of crashed, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and it was no coincidence. He was sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. These are six-winged angelic beings. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him, who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, if this was literally, literally in the temple, there was no wiggle room. Marble, stone, that thing did not move. But the bellowing of these seraphim caused the place to shake, right? And this is what Isaiah is seeing. Then I said, now look at his response, woe is me, for I am undone. Or literally, I'm destroyed, I'm cut off. He sees the glory of the Lord as a sinful man, probably not the full glory, and he even that much is enough to say to him, this isn't good for me. I shouldn't be here. And I dwell in the, I'm in the... I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. The king was Uzziah. He died. He says, my eyes have seen the king, the real king. And that's where our focus needs to be on brothers and sisters. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a live coal which he had taken from the tongues of the altar and he touched my mouth with it and said... Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. And I also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. It's good stuff. We had a false prophecy this week about the end of the world. We laughed about it, but unfortunately... The only thing that Harold Camping did for the world through this was he stimulated the economy, because apparently they spent hundreds of million dollars on billboards and advertising and all that kind of stuff. But he did nothing spiritually. As a matter of fact, he hurt people spiritually. This campaign went out through all over the world, in different countries, in different languages, uh, and there's a lot of folks who are scared, and a lot of folks who are depressed and despondent, a lot who have followed him who are they're, they're crushed emotionally and psychologically. That's what happens when you follow a cult leader. We, I believe, there's a lot of damage control that needs to be done. I believe we need to show the world the love of Christ. We need to be a part of what the Lord is doing. We need to be a part of when the Lord calls for laborers that we raise our hands and say, yes, send me. We've seen the glory of the Lord in the scripture. We know the truth. We see the condition of the world, the unsaved. What are we waiting for? And I'll leave it with this. The glory of the Lord does three things. Number one, and you can see this, it shows us that we're sinners. Whether it's Peter or whether it's Isaiah, when we see the glory of the Lord, when we see him for who he is, when we read the scripture, we know immediately I know immediately that I am a sinner. This book is a reflection to me, to my soul. Two, it shows us that we need him. We can't live without him and we can't die without him. Two, and number three, it shows us in both examples that when we see the glory of the Lord, we want to be a part of what he is doing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we...